You are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode 14 in the series. Today's episode is titled Reunion. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and you are now listening to episode number 14 of Odyssey, the podcast, an episode I am choosing to title Reunion. So a quick recap of where we left things at the end of episode number 13. The 108 suitors to Penelope are all now butchered and dead and stacked like so much firewood outside in the courtyard of the palace. The twelve disloyal slave girls have received, at least according to Odysseus and Telemachus, an appropriate punishment for their crimes, and they are now hanging in the courtyard. And the mutilated body of Melanthius, the disloyal slave, has been left in the courtyard too, as a cautionary warning to all other disloyal male slaves inside of the Ithacan palace. So now, the Great Hall has been cleaned, fumigated, and restored to its former glory and order. And Odysseus, now still sporting, if you will, Athena's homeless beggar disguise, well, Odysseus has now decided it is the appropriate time to give the old nursemaid Eurycleia permission to go to the ladies' quarters of the palace. And, of course, Eurycleia is just itching to get up there to discover her mistress Penelope, likely working at her loom, and to give her mistress Penelope the exceedingly wonderful and glorious good news. Odysseus, her husband, has returned home, and all 108 of those suitors are now dead. And so, episode number 14 of Odyssey the Podcast, begins now, with Eurycleia stepping into the ladies' quarters to bring her mistress Penelope the good news. But, ladies and gentlemen, when Eurycleia arrived and delivered the information to Penelope, well, things didn't turn out exactly as Eurycleia had hoped that they might. In fact, here is what happened Eurycleia stepped into the room and announced the following. My lady, Odysseus, Odysseus is alive. He, he has come home again and he has taken revenge on all of the suitors. He, he is the old beggar, the one that all the suitors abused. My lady Telemachus has known all about it for some time, but, but Telemachus, he kept it secret. But my lady, Odysseus, he has returned home. To which circumspect Penelope had rather coldly replied. As you know, Eurycleia, my son and I would be delighted if Odysseus came home. In fact, we all would. 
However, what you say, Eurycleia, cannot be true. It must have been one of the gods who killed those suitors as punishment for their crimes. But my Odysseus? My Odysseus has lost his home, and somewhere in some far country, he lost his life. Well, poor Eurycleia, the ancient old nursemaid, was now absolutely beside herself. Her master, after twenty long years away, was finally back home again, and her own mistress now refused to believe the good news. Eurycleia went so far as to cite the evidence of the famous hunting wound and of the telltale scar, but Penelope, well, Penelope remained absolutely unconvinced. But there was some good news. Penelope did turn to Eurycleia and declared that she herself wanted to go downstairs into the great hall and into the courtyard to see the dead bodies of those suitors for herself. And further, Penelope declared she wanted to see this man who had killed the 108 suitors and who now was claiming to be her own dear husband. Now, folks, if you will permit me a little aside and a digression, we have been participating in an ongoing and centuries-old debate for the preceding two episodes, and the debate has centered on whether Penelope knows or does not know that the homeless beggar inside of her palace is actually her dear husband Odysseus. And this particular section of the story, which I just relayed, well, that has drawn considerable scholarly debate on both sides of the argument. Because some scholars, of course, now cite Penelope's doubts and her unwillingness to believe as hard proof and the ultimate evidence that Penelope has not once suspected for even a moment that the homeless beggar was her husband Odysseus. But of course, there's always another side to these scholarly debates. And the folks on the other side argue the following. They claim that Penelope might have, in her deepest heart of hearts, known that the homeless beggar was Odysseus, and have known that for some time, actually. But now, now that Penelope is confronted with having to intellectually accept and state that fact out loud. Well, Penelope's doubts and her denials now should simply be seen as Penelope's oh-so-human means of self-protecting herself in meeting out the magnitude of the good news in cautious, tentative little bits that her poor, dear heart can manage. But, Whatever the case in this debate, pay your money, take your chances, we will never really know. All we do know now is that Penelope, circumspect, cautious Penelope, agreed to accompany Eurycleia, overjoyed and not in the least bit circumspect, downstairs into the Great Hall to inspect the carnage and to meet the man claiming to be her husband. Homer accounts what happened. 
So Penelope went downstairs, and she sat across from the man, in silence, stunned. Sometimes when she was glancing at his face, it seemed like Odysseus, but other times all that she could see was a beggar in filthy rags. And folks, what did Odysseus do all of this time as his wife sat in silence staring at him? Well, Homer accounts. Odysseus, he sat still, and he kept his eyes down, waiting to find out whether the woman who had once shared his bed would speak to him now. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as this tentative reunion scene unfolded with cautious Penelope staring at the homeless beggar and Odysseus keeping his eyes down in silence, well, it was all absolutely too much for young Telemachus, who was sitting in the room witnessing the scene. And folks, no doubt young Telemachus had been hoping for some sort of a happy fairy tale reunion. And he wanted something resplendent and all of the romantic urgency and the airbrushed fireworks that make a teenager's view of love such a sweetly and delightfully naive thing. But what Telemachus obviously did not understand as he witnessed this stunted and disappointing reunion scene was the perspective of the two adults in the room. Folks, this was a reunion between two individuals who, truth be told, barely even knew each other. Oh, of course, back 20 years ago, they had spent a year together. But an awful lot had happened to both of them in the past 20 years. Odysseus had spent 10 years on the bloody battlefields of Troy, and then another 10 years in his great wanderings. And as for Penelope? Well, 20 years ago, when her husband had set sail for Troy, Penelope had been a mere child, a 14 or a 15-year-old girl, looking after an infant son called Telemachus. And for the past 20 years, while Odysseus had been off on his wars and his travels, well, Penelope had undertaken a rather fearsome odyssey of her very own. And so, these two adults confronting each other now inside of the Ithacan Great Hall, well, they might have known each other once, but they certainly didn't know each other anymore. But of course, all of that was lost on disappointed young Telemachus, who had his heart set on a fairy tale reunion. And so Telemachus exploded in anger, and, not surprisingly, he blamed everything on his mum. Here's what he said. Mother, cruel, heartless mother, why are you doing this? Why are you rejecting father? Go over, talk to him, sit beside him. No other woman in the world would be as obstinate as you to keep your distance from him when he has been away for 20 years 
suffering. But your heart, mother, your heart is hard as a rock, and it always has been. And ladies and gentlemen, I think it's rather telling that Telemachus speaks of his hero father as the only individual in the relationship who has suffered anything in the preceding 20 years. But whatever the case, poor Penelope took her son's insults and complaints in stride, and she gently tried to soothe Telemachus and explain the situation to him as best she could. Dear child, the heart in my breast is, is stunned. I, I cannot find words. I, I can't even look in to his eyes. And then she offered Telemachus at least a shred of hope. But if he, if he really is Odysseus, then the two of us will recognize each other. Of that I am sure. There are secrets between us. Secrets that only he and I could know. And folks, when Penelope uttered those last words, Homer tells us, And with those words, hardened Odysseus began to smile. And he turned and he spoke to the boy. Son, you must allow your mother to test me, and then she will come around. It is only because I am filthy and dressed in rags that she does not recognize me now. And folks then, Odysseus, I think, quite prudently decided it was likely best to change the subject of conversation for a little while. First of all, in order to give his wife time to adjust to this reunion, next to distract Telemachus and keep him from any further outbursts, and finally, to deal with a very practical and pressing matter. Ladies and gentlemen, so far, the slaughter of 108 of Ithaca's finest young noblemen remained a secret, confined to Odysseus and the loyal slaves inside of the Great Hall. Now, the reason it remained a secret, of course, is that anybody who might have wanted to share it, the 108 noblemen or those slave girls or Melanthius, well, they were all dead in the courtyard. But... Odysseus knew that rumor had a way of leaking out and that bad news always seems to travel very, very quickly indeed. And Odysseus further knew that once news of the massacre of the suitors did leak out, there was going to be absolute Hades to pay in the kingdom of Ithaca. So folks, a bit of a reminder. We need to recall that Ithaca operated on a Bronze Age cultural model built on revenge justice. Everything in Ithaca was eye-for-eye and multi-generational blood vengeance. And so, Odysseus's act of revenge in killing 108 noblemen was immediately, of course, going to precipitate 108 Ithacan families into acts of revenge of their very own. And the cycle of retributive violence and death hardwired into this culture would carry on, rather like a grim dance. And so, 
Odysseus came up with a temporary time-buying strategy. Here's what he did. He turned to Penelope, Telemachus, and Eurycleia, and he instructed the three of them to organize a household wedding. A fake wedding, of course, but it would be a fake wedding full of loud noise, singing, dancing, musical instruments, and lots and lots and lots of stomping of feet. Now, what Odysseus conceptualized is that everybody outside of the Ithacan palace, well, the last they knew, there were 108 suitors inside competing this day for the hand of the lovely Penelope. So, all Odysseus would do now is stage a noisy fake wedding inside of the Great Hall, and everybody in the outside of the palace would assume that one of the suitors had won the contest and now had proceeded immediately to marry Penelope. And what they were hearing was the sound of festivities. So, Eurycleia, Telemachus, and Penelope organized all of the household slaves. They all headed down into the Great Hall, and they set Odysseus's plan into action. And the plan worked brilliantly. In Homer's words, Very soon, the house resounded with the thump of beating feet. And all of those outside of the palace, hearing these sounds, said to one another, Well, at last, someone has married the queen. And doubtless in no time at all, some enterprising Ithacan bookie was taking wagers on which of those 108 suitors had finally won Penelope's hand. And doubtless also, in no time at all, some enterprising Ithacan potter was already producing the very first batch of souvenir royal wedding dinnerware. But meanwhile... As the household, in delightful irony, staged a fake wedding in the very room where, an hour earlier, the 108 potential grooms had come to grisly ends, well, while that was happening, Odysseus took the time to head off for a bath, a good hot oil rubdown, and to dress himself in some more appropriately kingly clothing. And as Odysseus stepped out of his bath, and folks, by this stage inside of our story, you can see it coming. Of course, Athena arrived. For one more and final deific gilding of her and our favorite boy. Homer reports. And then, Athena poured attractiveness from head to toe, and made Odysseus taller and stronger and grew his hair thick and curly. As a craftsman trained in metalwork pours gold onto silver, just so Athena poured beauty on Odysseus's head and on his shoulders. After his bath, he looked like a god. And so, in essence, folks, Odysseus received the identical gilding Homeric treatment, word for word, in fact, as Athena had provided to Odysseus, her boy, on more than one occasion in our preceding story. And then, appropriately bathed, oiled, clothed, and gilded, Odysseus, now looking like Odysseus, 
returned to his great hall, and once again he sat down on a chair opposite his wife. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the Odysseus who sat down now, of course, did not look like a homeless beggar at all. In fact, it appears as though Athena had transformed Odysseus not into his 50-year-old self, but rather, possibly for Penelope's immediate benefit, into Odysseus's 30-year-old self. But, ladies and gentlemen, if you will permit me an aside, while Athena's age reduction gilding might be very useful for purposes of immediate identification now, there will come a morning someday in the future when poor Penelope rolls over in bed and Athena's disguise will have worn off. And then suddenly Penelope will be faced with the reality of a very hard-traveled 50-year-old stranger sleeping in her bed. Now, neither Homer nor Athena seem to be remotely concerned about this eventuality, so perhaps I shouldn't be either. So let's move on and back to our story. Odysseus sat down and he looked every bit his 30-year-old self. And ladies and gentlemen, you would assume that at this point, Penelope would finally, finally, finally believe. But it is not what happened. Instead, Penelope, who seemed to be worried somehow that an imposter looking identical to her husband might now be trying to convince her that he was her husband, well, Penelope had decided that she would set for Odysseus, or for the imposter, one final test. Now, earlier in their conversation, she had stated to Telemachus that there are, I quote, secrets between the two of us that only he and I know. And so now Penelope, who had had some time to think and to strategize, well, Odysseus, or the man claiming to be Odysseus, was off having his bath. Well, Penelope was now set to set her test. And if this man was an imposter, Penelope was going to know in absolutely no time flat. And so, here is what Penelope proceeded to do. Folks, the man claiming to be Odysseus, or Odysseus, had, in their earlier conversation in the day, before the bath, well, that man had declared that he was tired and badly in need of sleep. He had had a fairly full day of slaughtering 108 suitors, after all. And so now, Penelope saw an opportunity to test that man. So, as the man looking like Odysseus sat opposite her, Penelope resummoned her nursemaid Eurycleia. And when Eurycleia arrived, Penelope casually instructed Eurycleia as follows Nurse, Eurycleia, go and make up the bed for the night, with a mattress, with soft sheets, and with warm blankets, so that Odysseus here can have some sleep. Oh, and Eurycleia, pull out the bed. 
Make the bed up for my husband outside of our bedroom. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Penelope's instructions to Eurycleia seem innocuous enough to we listeners, and of course, the instructions would have seemed innocuous enough to any imposter. But I'm now going to let you in on the inside knowledge that only Odysseus and Penelope shared. So here is the backstory that will help us to understand and appreciate the subtlety of Penelope's test. So folks, way back, 21 years ago back in fact, it was the big day when Odysseus had just received permission from Penelope's father to court and to marry Penelope. And Odysseus, over the moon with joy, had decided to celebrate his impending wedding by building his blushing bride-to-be an absolutely unique and incredibly special marital wedding bed. Now, folks, even back 21 years ago, Odysseus was a bit of a master craftsman, and in this bed that he constructed, we can already see hints or teasers of the wooden horse, which he was going to be famous for 11 years later. So let me tell you about this bed that Odysseus built for his blushing bride-to-be. Odysseus constructed the bed with four bedposts, which was the way of building beds then and now. But here's what we need to know about those bedposts. Three of them were standard garden-variety pieces of wood. But one of the bedposts, folks, Odysseus actually carved out of an actual living tree. An olive tree, to be exact. And that olive tree, even after Odysseus had carved a bedpost out of it, remained quite alive and firmly rooted inside of the Ithacan soil. So, that was the construction of the bed. And once the bed had been constructed... Odysseus demonstrated his skills as a mason by building the four walls of the bedroom around the bed. And finally, in a rather remarkable and unique bit of craftsmanship, Odysseus proceeded to build the entire rest of his house around that bedroom. Now, folks, we do have to pause here to pose the obvious question. And the question is this. Was our boy Odysseus, when he set out on this rather remarkable construction project, even remotely aware of the layers of symbolism involved in this particular bed? Think about it. At the very heart of the home, the marriage bed. And at the very center of the marriage bed, a living tree with roots extending deep into the Ithacan soil. And the living tree? Of course it was an olive tree. The species of tree sacred to the goddess Athena herself. And finally, of course, the bed, definitionally, was like the marriage absolutely unmovable. This bed could not be taken anywhere. The bed was grounded in an olive tree supported by Athena and deep into the soil 
of Ithaca itself. And ladies and gentlemen, whether Odysseus was aware of all of those layers of symbolism at the heart of his construction project, well, we will never know. But generations of Homeric scholars and generations of literature teachers have silently thanked Odysseus for taking the trouble to build his bed that way. And generations of students have cursed Odysseus for having to write long, long essays on Discuss the Symbolism of Odysseus's Marriage Bed. So back to our story, and folks, I've already now told you the critical element of the story and the critical element of Penelope's test. Because Penelope knew, definitionally, that her bed, designed by Odysseus, was an unmovable bed. And of course, that meant that when Penelope gave Eurycleia instructions, she chose her words very carefully. And the words she chose, well, they would not have resonated with any imposter. But my, oh my, those words resonated with the real Odysseus. So let's go back and revisit again Penelope's precise instructions to Eurycleia concerning that bet. Here's what she said. Eurycleia, go and make up my husband's bed for the night with a mattress with soft sheets and with warm blankets, so that Odysseus can get some sleep. Oh, and Eurycleia, pull out the bed and make it up outside of our bedroom. And folks, the words were barely out of Penelope's mouth when Odysseus absolutely exploded in rage. Woman! Your words, your words have cut my heart. What man dared to move our bed? And folks, of course, by extension, Odysseus was also asking, Penelope, wife, what man became so intimate with you while I was gone that he was allowed access to our marital bedroom. And was there in Odysseus's question and his comments and his worry now just a brief shadow, a flicker of doubt, and did all of those cautionary tales of Agamemnon, of Clytemnestra, and of the general faithlessness of all wives everywhere now come back to plague our boy Odysseus with a few final doubts about his very own Penelope. But if Odysseus had those doubts, they passed in a moment, and the good news, folks, is that Odysseus, our hero, has now completed his hero's journey, and Odysseus the hero has now, of course, passed the hero's final test. Homer reports, And as Penelope heard her husband's indisputable proof, her knees went limp and her heart melted. She burst into tears and ran up to him. She threw her arms around him and she kissed his face. 
And then, folks, and I think quite unnecessarily as far as Odysseus was concerned, Penelope did her best to explain to her husband her reticence, her hesitation, or, well, in Telemachus's earlier words, her obstinacy and her unwillingness to believe. And it's interesting what she said. Do not be angry with me, Odysseus. Do not hold it against me that the moment I saw you, I did not run up and embrace you. I have lived in dread that some man might pose as you and deceive me with his lies. But now, now you have told the story of our bed, a secret that no other mortal knows. So at last, husband, you have won me over, and you have made my stubborn heart believe. And now, folks, I will defer to Homer for yet one more of his masterful similes to complete this reunion scene. As welcome as the land is to swimmers, when Poseidon wrecks their ship at sea and breaks it with great waves and driving wind, a few escape the sea and reach the shore, their skin all caked with brine. Grateful to be alive, they crawl to land. Just so glad was Penelope to see her own dear husband, and she held him tight in her arms, and she would not let go. And folks, I think it really is worth noting in the preceding simile that it is Penelope and not Odysseus who is portrayed as the traveling sailor beset by storms, perils, and shipwrecks before finally surviving and reaching safe, dry land. And to his credit, Homer, the wordsmith, in this final simile, acknowledges that Penelope, like her husband, has, against all odds, survived and completed an odyssey of her own. And ladies and gentlemen, shortly after that, Odysseus and Penelope were reunited and together in their unmovable wedding bed. Homer reports, And when Penelope and Odysseus had taken their pleasure in the joys of love, they told each other stories. She told him of everything she had endured in the palace, and he told her of the suffering he had inflicted and of all that he had suffered himself on his journey home. And, of course, you have to ask because we are curious. And the answer is this. Odysseus provided his wife Penelope with a full and a frank account of his entire journey home, including the details of every monster that he defeated and of every temptation that he eventually overcame. And as to Penelope's response to Odysseus's full and frank disclosure, Homer tells us the following. 
She listened to it all, enchanted, and she did not close her eyes until he had finished. Now, meanwhile, the goddess Athena, who seemed to be watching over and delighting in the happy couple's reunion, well, Athena decided it was time to pull a little bit of final deific magic out of her bronze helmet. And so Athena decided to hold back the dawn, such that Odysseus and Penelope could stay up for what was going to turn into a very, very, very long night. They needed time, of course, to make love. They needed time, of course, to share their stories, and by all accounts, Odysseus told Penelope his entire Great Wanderings account. And finally, the couple needed time to gently and tentatively become familiar again with a person that they had not seen, but only imagined for a long 20 years. And when all of that was done, both Odysseus and Penelope were badly in need of some seriously nourishing sleep. And so, the goddess Athena held back the dawn, and then the couple held on to each other, holding each other tight in their arms and not letting go. And folks, were this a Hollywood movie as opposed to a rendition of Homer's Odyssey, then this is exactly where any self-respecting Hollywood movie producer would wrap up his or her film. The camera would pan out from a soft, focused bedroom scene. The credits would roll and some sweeping instrumental music would play in the background. And everybody watching Homer's Odyssey, the film, would walk home hand in hand and very happy indeed. And ladies and gentlemen, not only would a self-respecting film director end his or her story here, when I step on stage and tell my four-hour renditions of Homer's Odyssey, this is the point where I usually choose to wrap up my story and send my live audience home very happy indeed. But Homer's tale carries on from book 23, where we are now, and directly into the final book, book 24 of the Odyssey. And book 24 of the Odyssey, folks, accounts what happens the following morning when Odysseus and Penelope eventually make their way out of bed and confront the morning after. Because there is always, of course, a morning after, and no matter how romantic and glistening the night before had been, there are always practical matters to consider in the cold, grey light of dawn. And so, Odysseus and Penelope eventually did wake up, and the two of them turned to each other and began to talk about a few hard realities. Now, first off, folks, Odysseus had bad news 
to discuss with his wife. And the gist of the bad news was this. Ladies and gentlemen, do you remember some eight long years ago when Odysseus paid a visit to the land of grim Hades? It was actually way back in Odyssey, the podcast, episode number five. Well, during that visit to the land of grim Hades, of course, Odysseus had talked at some length with the blind prophet Tiresias. Now, when I relayed the story of that conversation to you, Back in episode number five of our podcast, I deliberately omitted from my account one particular item of conversation between the blind prophet and our boy Odysseus, because I was respecting my no plot spoilers guarantee. But of course, now I can share the full conversation with you. So here, back eight years ago, is what Tiresias had told Odysseus. Tiresias had explained that if Odysseus even did manage to someday make it safely back home to Ithaca, then the moment that he arrived back home, he was going to have to turn around and depart on yet one more final and epic quest. Now, apparently the problem was this. If Odysseus did not undertake this additional final quest, well, then the god of the sea, Poseidon, would continue to come gunning for Odysseus, and Odysseus was pretty well guaranteed a death by horrific drowning the next time he headed out onto the Mediterranean. On the other hand, if Odysseus participated in and completed this quest, well, then Poseidon would be appeased and Odysseus could, well, retire to a long, aged life without any fear of drowning or interventions by the petulant god of the sea. And so, as Odysseus explained to Penelope, he really had no choice. The quest was pretty well necessary, or, well, Odysseus was going to die anyway. And as an aside here, ladies and gentlemen, for our contemporary audience benefit, It's very difficult to not see this tiny little insertion into Homer's Odyssey, once inside of the Land of the Dead story, and then a mention of it again right now as we're wrapping up our plot, as the author Homer's means of setting himself up for a possible sequel. Now, of course, we'll never know if that was the plan, because that sequel, as far as we know, was never, ever written down. So, that was the first bit of bad news that Odysseus had to discuss with his wife in the cold light of dawn on the morning after their happy reunion. But folks, there was an even more immediate, dire, and pressing bit of bad news for the two of them to discuss. Somehow, the news of the massacre in the Great Hall had leaked out. And the people of Ithaca, especially the families of those 108 butchered young men, well, those people were now gathering their weapons, rallying and preparing to play their inevitable role in Ithaca's retributive cycle of eye-for-an-eye justice and blood vengeance. Homer accounts what was actually happening outside of the palace inside of the Ithacan town square. 
Swift rumor spread the news all through the city of the suitor's dreadful murder. When people heard, they rushed from all directions towards the palace of Odysseus with shouts and with lamentations. And when the people were assembled, the father of Antinous, inconsolable with grief, stood up and spoke. This scheming man has done us all monstrous wrongs. First, he took many good men off to Troy with him, and he lost the ships and killed the men. And now, now he has come back and murdered the best of those men's sons. So come on, before he sneaks away. We will be shamed forever unless we take revenge on him for killing our sons and our brothers. And folks, I have to report that the view of Antinous's father represented the overwhelming majority opinion of the people of Ithaca. And if we think about it from their perspective, it really is no surprise. Antinous's father had a legitimate point. There were two full generations of Ithacan blood on Odysseus's hands. Now, in fairness, there were a few voices inside of the gathering mob who argued the opposite point of view. And they pointed out the following. They pointed out that the 108 suitors who had been butchered had been guilty of grave wrongs. First against their rightful king, next against the rightful king's rightful heir, next against that king's wife, and finally and ultimately against all of Zeus's laws of hospitality. But that opinion was the minority view inside of the Ithacan mob. And so, outside of Odysseus's palace walls, most of the population of Ithaca was gathering with weapons in hand and preparing to confront Odysseus, the bringer of so much pain. Now, meanwhile, folks, back inside of the Ithacan palace, Odysseus's conversation with Penelope was interrupted because from outside the gates of the palace, Odysseus could clearly hear the gathering roar of the angry Ithacan mob. And as he looked out, he could see that there were well over a hundred angry Ithacan citizens, all heavily armed and looking for his blood. So, Odysseus paused to consider his options. Yesterday, he had held off a mob of this size inside of his great hall. But today, he thought he might be better off if he and Telemachus escaped the confines of the palace and found a more suitable place to fight and, I suppose if needs be, an easier place to escape from if the fighting went badly. So Odysseus and Telemachus had to get out of the palace. Now, that was a problem. The gates were all barred by the angry mob of Ithacans, but Athena stepped in and facilitated things a little bit. 
In Homer's words, I quote, Athena wrapped the two of them in a dense mist and made them invisible, and then she led them both safely out of the town. Now, folks, where Odysseus decided to stage his last stand against his angry subjects was out in the countryside and specifically at the country home of his aging old father, Laertes. So just a little bit of a background refresher, since we haven't talked about Laertes together since way back in episode one of Odyssey the Podcast. So King Laertes, as you know, had, on Odysseus's 30th birthday, decided that he, Laertes, would retire from the kingship and hand the reins of power over to his son. So on the day that Odysseus became Ithaca's king, Laertes packed up his bags and headed to his country cottage, where, Laertes's plan was, he would live out the rest of his natural life, tending to vines, doing a little bit of light gardening, and generally enjoying the Freedom 55 lifestyle. And his son, back in town, would look after all things kingly and governance. But now, all these 20 years later, Poor old Laertes was a tired, heartbroken, and heart-sick man. Because, of course, his son Odysseus had left 20 long years earlier for the Trojan War, and his son had never, ever returned home. And so far as Laertes was concerned, Odysseus, his dear boy, was long dead and gone. So now Laertes tended to his vines, but got no joy in it. He simply existed, lost in a fog of memories of the son that he once had and no longer did. Now, ladies and gentlemen, why Odysseus, or perhaps we should credit Homer, decided that it was a brilliant idea to head up to Laertes' estate and enlist the assistance of an octogenarian and his sword arm, apparently, in a fight to the death against an overwhelming mob of angry Ithacans, well, I suppose we will never know that. But Odysseus and Telemachus eventually arrived at the Laertes farm. Well, from a distance, they could see the poor old man out pottering in his fields, and he looked more like a homeless beggar than he did like a king. So Odysseus instructed his son Telemachus to go into the cottage and prepare a meal while he, Odysseus, had his longed-for reunion with his aging old father. Now, I wish that I could report to you that the reunion was joyous. But ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus, ever the master of disguises and always wanting to tell one more tall bullshit tale, simply could not resist the opportunity. And so Odysseus disguised himself and approached his feeble old heartbroken father, claiming to be a stranger from out of town. Well, Laertes had looked up and asked Odysseus the now familiar Homeric question. Stranger, who are you? And where do you come from? And who were your parents? And folks, our boy Odysseus, unwilling even in his own country 
or in this case, even for his own father, to drop the tricks and the tales that he loved from the bottom of his treacherous heart. Well, Odysseus responded, exactly as we listeners have come to expect. Smiling, Odysseus in disguise turned to his father and spoke. Well, since you ask, I will tell you the truth. And then, of course, our boy Odysseus had launched into an epically long and entirely improvised bullshit story, including, just to add more misery and heartbreak to his poor old 80-year-old father, an Odysseus sighting, but a sighting from many years ago. Well, Laertes, of course, the bitter memories of his lost son reawakened by this stranger's story, poor Laertes broke down completely. Homer accounts. A black cloud of sorrow enfolded the old man. He stooped down to the ground, and with both hands he picked up soot and dust. These he poured over his head, and he started to sob uncontrollably. And only then, with his octogenarian father absolutely shattered, did Odysseus grin, reveal his identity, and declare that, It is me, father. I have come home. Now, meanwhile, folks, well, all of this reunion was happening, the angry mob, who had somehow figured out where Odysseus and Telemachus had run to, well, that mob began its march towards the Laertes family farm, armed with swords, spears, armor, and shields. And soon, the mob arrived. And then, ladies and gentlemen, three generations of Ithacan nobility, Laertes, Odysseus, and Telemachus, well, they stepped outside of the cottage, they strapped on their swords, they gripped their spears, and they prepared to fight the overwhelming mob to the death. And, of course, they would have lost. Except that we're veterans enough of our story now, folks, that we know exactly what, or more precisely, who, happened next. Athena arrived. Athena arrived in order to save the day and to guarantee Odysseus an epically decisive victory over even more of his enemies. Except that, folks, that is not actually what happened on this particular day. Instead, here is what happened. The two opposing forces drew very near each other, so near, in fact, that Laertes, with a little bit of Athena's help, to be honest, managed to actually get off a rather successful spear throw at the enemy. But then, just as the angry mob was about to charge and overwhelm Odysseus and company, Athena manifest herself in her full deific glory and Athena stepped right between the two 
armies. And folks, Athena, in full goddess glory, delivered a decidedly unexpected edict. Here's what she declared. Men of Ithaca, stop this destructive fighting. Shed no more blood. Now go your separate ways at once. And folks, well, the men of Ithaca, at least the men inside of the angry mob, they did not need being told twice by the goddess. They were much less familiar with personal deific interventions than were Odysseus and Telemachus. So the moment that Athena revealed herself in her full majesty and glory and gave the command, well, the Ithacan mob did the smart thing. They dropped their weapons, they turned, and they ran in terror, putting as much possible distance as they could between themselves and the goddess. But our boy Odysseus, he heard Athena's edict, but our boy Odysseus chose to disobey that edict. Now here's why. You have to recall that our hero Odysseus is at his core a situational pragmatist. And so Odysseus, assessing the situation in front of him now, well, Odysseus saw a golden opportunity. An opportunity, folks, for him to easily kill every last member of that mob. Especially now that they had all dropped their weapons and were running blindly with their backs turned. And ladies and gentlemen, seeing the opportunity... Odysseus raised his sword and he charged. In Homer's words, With a dreadful roar, Odysseus pursued them, swooping down on them all as an eagle swoops from the air. And had Odysseus had his way, then it's pretty certain that by nightfall of that day, there would not have been a man of consequence left alive in the entire island kingdom, because it was Odysseus's intention to slaughter them all. And he would have, in spite of Athena's edict, except that Zeus, watching proceedings from Mount Olympus, Zeus decided to intervene. In Zeus's opinion, no mortal man, no matter how cunning, how clever or how complicated he was, no mortal man was going to get away with directly disobeying an edict from Zeus's favorite daughter. And so, folks, as Odysseus, sword in hand, bloodlust in his eyes, charged towards the mob, Zeus, from Mount Olympus, hurled down a cautionary bolt of lightning, directly into our hero's path. And that bolt of lightning managed to cause our boy Odysseus to stop. Pushing the limits and the patience of his favorite deity was one thing, but offending the father of gods and men 
was quite a different thing. Odysseus was enough of a pragmatist that he knew when it was time to pay attention to the gods. And so he stood there in the middle of what should have been a battlefield, trying to decide what to do. And that, of course, folks, is when Athena, the goddess of practical wisdom, approached. And she had a twinkle in her eye, and no doubt she was laughing a little bit as she watched her very favorite human inspecting his slightly lightning bolt singed tunic. And then Athena, she spoke. Odysseus, you are adaptable, and you always do find solutions. So, stop this fighting, or Zeus will be angry with you. And ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus, the situational pragmatist, put down his sword. And he did exactly as the goddess ordered. In fact, on the goddess's command, Odysseus swore an oath of binding peace with his angry subjects. And ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus was really only too glad to obey the goddess. Because he knew, in Athena's words, that he was adaptable. And that if peace with his subjects did not really work out so well, well, in Athena's words, he would find some other solutions. And so, for the time being at least, peace, order, and good government had finally been restored to the kingdom of Ithaca. The rightful king sat on his throne the king's faithful wife slept by his side, and the king and his troublesome subjects, those of them still left alive, well, they had sworn a sacred oath to live forever in peace. And so, with order restored, and with all possible loose ends neatly wrapped up, Homer concludes his story. And our odyssey together, my faithful listeners, well, our odyssey draws very near to its end, too. And so welcome back, folks, to the post-story commentary. And I suppose I might as well deliver the obvious and bad news now. But ladies and gentlemen, this will be our final post-story commentary. So I am hoping to accomplish three particular tasks. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about the Odyssey's troubling endings, and in specific about some of the frustrations which I have as a storyteller with Homer's book number 24. Next, once I finish venting those frustrations, since it is our final post-story commentary together, I want to try to, if we can, do a little bit of forensically creative speculation on what things might be like for Ithaca, for Odysseus, for Penelope, and for young Telemachus 
in the weeks, the months, and even the years ahead. And finally, of course, I will have to find some way of reluctantly saying my goodbyes to you, my ever-faithful and wonderful listeners. But let's save the hard part till a little bit later in the post-story commentary and get right into the Odyssey's troubling endings. Now, folks, you will recall that when I was telling you the story, when I got to the scene where Odysseus and Penelope were reunited in their unmovable bed and the goddess Athena chose to hold back the dawn so the couple could have a night of lovemaking, of storytelling, and then finally, of course, of sleeping, well, once I finished that particular scene, I cued to my own theme music, and I played about 25 seconds of Odyssey the Podcast theme music, before I returned to the plot. And when I came back, what I was turning to, if you're familiar with Homer's Odyssey's structure, is I was turning to book number 24 of Homer's Odyssey. Now, it's kind of telling that I chose to do that, that I really, really wanted to, I think as I said, wrap this story up with its Hollywood ending, with Odysseus and Penelope reunited in the marital bed. But I think I told you at the time that Homer decided to tell us a story of the morning after the night before. And as your storyteller telling you the Odyssey, I think it's my professional, or thought it was my professional, obligation to carry on beyond the happy fairy tale ending. So what we're going to talk about now is we're going to talk about book number 24 of the Odyssey. And it's interesting that the translator Stephen Mitchell, actually in his translation notes, refers to Book 24 as being the Odyssey's, I quote, sputtering finale. And ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Mitchell is not the only critic or scholar or translator of Homer's Odyssey to remark upon this sputtering ending. In fact, there is a time-honored tradition about complaining about Book Number 24 of Homer's Odyssey that goes all the way back to the 2nd century BCE. And two of the first and original and most eminent Homeric scholars, a guy named Aristarchus of Samothrace and another guy named Aristophanes of Byzantium, well, both of them, apparently in fragments of their scholarly works which remain, complain that Book 24 of Homer's Odyssey was not actually created or composed by Homer himself but that some later author or series of authors had tacked on all of the stories following Odysseus and Penelope's bedroom reunion scene. Now, I'm not remotely qualified to wade into a debate on the authorship of book number 24. I will leave that for the translators and for the Homeric scholars. What I do find fascinating, though, is that every translator I read and every Homeric scholar I read or listen to seems quite insistent on talking about Book 24 and then usually, with varying degrees, insistent on arguing in favor of its inclusion as genuine Homer. But what I find fascinating, folks, is that these scholars feel a need to defend Book 24. So clearly, there is something off-putting or disconcerting enough about Book 24 in the Odyssey's ending that it warrants people defending it or at least talking about it. So what am I going to do? 
I'm going to confine my opinions not to the scholarly arguments, but rather to my own experiences as a storyteller, particularly as an on-stage performance storyteller or as an in-front-of-a-podcasting-microphone storyteller. And I can tell you this. I am not, to put it gently, a very big fan of Book 24, or in fact of anything inside of Homer's Odyssey following the famous bedroom reunion scene. So here are my storyteller's arguments. Number one, well, the obvious one. Book 24 violates our human instincts or our desires for a story wrapped up with a happy ending. The story wraps up brilliantly with Odysseus and Penelope reunited in bed. And everything after that, well, that's just basically unfortunate and disconcerting denouement. So on to argument number two. The content following the reunion scene is a bit of a downer. We now know that Odysseus is going to have to pack up and leave again in a very few days on yet one more quest. So the man is made at home, and we find out very quickly that you have to leave once again. And there's another downer later inside of Book 24, and that has to be the downer of the way that Odysseus, the consummate wordsmith, storyteller, and bullshit specialist, decides to treat old man Laertes, his dad. Now, there are some critics that argue that Odysseus was deliberately cruel towards Laertes as a means of getting Laertes out of his aging funk and getting him to recognize his place as a true king and not a destroyed and broken, feeble-down old man. But that's pretty rough treatment for a guy who's likely 80 to 85 years old. And most readers witnessing Odysseus's willful disguises and teasing and taunting of his dad don't find it salutary, but rather find it offensive. So now on to argument three. Folks, I find the final ending of Homer's Odyssey to be arbitrary and forced, as if my boy Homer knew how to tell a story, but seemed to have absolutely no idea how to end a story. And specifically, here's why. I want to examine the role of Athena inside of Book 24. And you know inside of Book 24 that Athena suddenly manifests herself between the two competing armies and becomes Athena, goddess of international peace. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've been paying any attention at all to the Odyssey, then this is an entirely different and wildly out-of-character Athena. Folks, particularly in the last few books of the Odyssey, from the time Odysseus makes it back home to his kingdom, well, Athena has been working her deific backside off on egging on the suitors into even more and more outrages and violations, such that her boy Odysseus can then have the pleasure of justifiably slaughtering them all. So now, suddenly, Athena, in the last hundred lines of Homer's poem, wants peace in our time? Folks, it really makes no sense. If Athena recognized that she had to bring an end to the cycle of blood vengeance, and that's a stretch because Athena seems to love the cycle of blood vengeance, but if she did want to put an end to it, 
then the logical time in the story to have done it would have been back in the Great Hall, seconds after Odysseus had shot an arrow through Antinous, and the moment when all the other suitors in the Great Hall were actually suing for peace and an end to the feuds and the blood vengeance. But at that stage in the story, did Athena step in as this newly minted ambassador of peace? No, she stepped in as mentor, participated joyously in the fighting, and then made sure, through her deific interventions, that the suitors' spear throws would all miss, and Odysseus would slaughter them all. So, Athena is wildly out of character, and the thing I think that's most telling is that Homer really doesn't develop this happy, peaceful ending scene at all. In fact, from the time Athena arrives on the scene inside of the Odyssey, up in old man Laredes' estate, until Homer attempts to tie up his final awkward loose ends and say his goodbyes, well, less than 100 lines of Odyssey actually unfold. It's almost as if Homer looked up, thought, damn it, I got a meeting to attend, I better wrap up my Odyssey now, so scratched out something to put an end to the story. And so, folks, an epic that began with aspirational and brilliant poetry like this, Sing to me, muse, of that endlessly cunning man who was blown off course to the ends of the earth in the years after he plundered Troy. Goddess, daughter of Zeus, begin now, wherever you wish to, and tell the story again for us. Well, a poem that began with that epic promise then ends with these lines. Then Athena made the warring sides swear solemn oaths of peace for future times, still in her guise as mentor. And as a final line for a brilliant piece of epic poetry, you gotta admit, the line somewhat underwhelms. Okay, so those are my three core arguments for why I don't like book number 24 of Homer's Odyssey very much. But there's one other little thing in book 24 which I dislike so much that I didn't even bother to include it inside of my rendition of Odyssey the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, book 24 begins with what I would consider to be an entirely unnecessary and rather silly second journey to the land of the dead, in which all 108 dead suitors pack up their bags, or their spirits, I suppose, and head down to the underworld where they are greeted at the gates by Achilles and Agamemnon and have a long conversation, essentially in which Agamemnon once again points out just how smashingly wonderful and faithful Penelope is compared to the woman that he knows. Now, folks, the reason I don't like the Book 24 Journey to the Land of the Dead is because in the Journey to the Land of the Dead, Book 24, Homer creates an entirely different version of the Land of Grim Hades than the version he gave us earlier inside of the Odyssey. Now, there is a fundamental rule of good storytelling. Your readers or your listeners will accept any universe that you create for them as their part in the willing suspension of disbelief contract between the storyteller and the audience. 
But then if you, as the storyteller, violate that contract by changing fundamentally the rules of the universe as you have created them, well, you offend your listeners' sensibilities, and worse than that, you take them out of their willing suspension of disbelief. And folks, it is my opinion that Homer's second journey to the land of the dead in Book 24 violates the fundamental storytelling contract. And I'm not entirely alone here. It's interesting that Stephen Mitchell, one of the three translations sitting in front of me now, has chosen to take the journey to the land of the dead, cut the scene out, and simply include it as an appendix. Okay, so that concludes my rant on Book 24 of Homer's Odyssey. So now let's move on to the second topic of conversation in this post-story commentary. I want to have a little bit of fun now playing around and speculating on what might happen next. So what we'll do here is just play with some of the hints or the clues or the content that Homer has given us and see if we can kind of guess what's in store for the people of Ithaca, our favorite characters, and how things might unfold over the next few days, weeks, months, or years of their lives. So, in no particular order, let's start off with the future of the relationship of Odysseus and Penelope. And folks, the scene inside of the bedroom is so ridiculously tender that it makes me optimistic. They seem as though, in spite of the fact that they barely know each other, and it's been 20 long years since they've been together, that there's something there that draws these two characters to each other, and maybe, just maybe, they will be able to pretty quickly pick up the loose ends, make up for those lost years, and build some sort of a future together. But there is a lingering little bit of anxiety in the back of my mind. That scene when Penelope tests Odysseus by instructing Eurycleia to move the bed outside of the room. And you'll recall that Odysseus passes that test, but the way he passes the test is by exploding and thundering, Woman, what man moved my bed? And it makes me worry a little bit. Is Odysseus a man who has in his 10 years at Troy and his 10 years of getting home, learned or developed the skill of never trusting anybody, going to be capable in the long run of even trusting his own wife. He seemed to doubt her there for a moment before recovering himself and smiling and recognizing it was all just part of a test. So now let's move on to Penelope. Penelope, we know, well, she waited 20 years for her husband to come home. She hung in and she did a masterful job of juggling all of her responsibilities. And now what is her reward? Her husband has turned around and announced that he has to take off almost immediately on a brand new quest. So let's put this into colloquial English. Here essentially is what Odysseus informed his wife. Uh, sorry, honey, but uh, I'm going to be needing to hit the road again on yet another epic journey, and uh, I'm pretty well going to have to pack my bags as soon as possible. 
But uh, for you, well, hopefully things will be a bit easier this time around. Uh, what with all 108 of the annoying suitors now dead, and with our son Telemachus having turned into such a mature and capable adult. And, uh, well, to your credit, girl, you have got pretty adept at the whole fidelity thing. And now that you've got the hang of it, well, it might be an awful lot easier this second time round. And folks, of course, that's not what Odysseus said. But I have to wonder, is that what Penelope, in her heart of hearts, might have heard? Okay, so now let's move on to Telemachus and ask a few questions about Telemachus over the next days, weeks, months, and years. Now, folks, with Telemachus, we are left at the end of the Odyssey with a mixed series of final impressions. To the lad's credit, he has accomplished some incredibly smart thinking inside of the Great Hall, and he has demonstrated some rather solid public speaking skills. But, on the other hand, there is no doubt that the boy is still decidedly immature for a 20-year-old man, and there is a whole host of just-below-the-surface and unresolved mummy issues. And finally, there is the lingering specter of those hanging slave girls. And it's not so much the specter of the girls that worries me, it's the rather troublesome and confused motivations of the boy who thought that they needed hanging. But, ladies and gentlemen, the big Telemachus question is the question of what is going to happen to Telemachus and Penelope once Odysseus packs up and heads off on his next epic journey. And the question is this, who is going to rule Ithaca? Now, very clearly, Penelope is not free to remarry or to leave the palace or to move in with a new husband because her current husband is quite manifestly back home. Further, no man in Ithaca would dare get anywhere near Penelope now. They know what will happen to them, their family, their family's friends, and anybody else associated with courting Penelope. Odysseus has sent off a pretty good object lesson in that department. But back to our problem of Penelope. It means that Penelope will not be able to leave the Ithacan palace, and she will have to remain her husband's steward of her husband's estate inside of that palace, essentially fulfilling the role that she has fulfilled for the past 20 years. But ladies and gentlemen, how is that possibly going to work out for Telemachus? Continuing to live in the palace of his dad, but not Ithaca's king. Still an emasculated king in waiting, with his mother continuing to be Odysseus's wife and the steward of the Ithacan estate. And folks, the simmering just below the surface Penelope versus Telemachus issues, which have dominated Homer's Odyssey, well, it is very difficult to imagine things getting anything but worse in the days, the weeks, the months, or possibly, depending on how long Odysseus is gone, the years to come. This is not going to be a very happy palace for either wife or son. So now let's turn to the people of Ithaca. 
And of course we know that in Book 24 of the Odyssey, Athena decreed a lasting peace and an end to the warfare between Odysseus and his subjects. But the truth of it is, folks, that this culture and the gods of this culture until the very final 25 lines of Homer's Odyssey, well, this culture and their gods know nothing and respect nothing and value nothing but blood, vengeance, and cycles of retributive violence. And so, how long will Athena's jerry-rigged little truce actually last before the cycle of perpetual revenge violence begins again? And especially, ladies and gentlemen, how long will peace, order, and good government in Ithaca last once Odysseus, the sword arm of the executive branch, is off on his next quest. And finally, that brings us to Odysseus himself. And ladies and gentlemen, the big question about our boy Odysseus is whether or not he is capable of actually ever settling down and living in peace. Because much as we love our boy Odysseus, he has demonstrated time and time again, that his way of solving problems and of managing enemies, real or imagined enemies, is always through acts of summary violence. And folks, it is rather telling that the very final 15 sentences of Homer's Odyssey show Odysseus, our boy Odysseus, about to plunge into one more massacre. So the question is, can this man ever, even once he has completed this next quest, learn how to live in peace, order, and trust with other human beings? And the boy, well, let's just say that Odysseus's resume in this department has not been, so far at least, very promising. Now, if you'll permit me a tiny little digression here, folks. We know that Homer did not write a sequel to his story. But because Homer ends his story with the possibility of a sequel, of Odysseus having to head off on yet one more quest, well, a host of lesser authors following Homer used that possibility to create their own Odysseus stories. And, ladies and gentlemen, I am going to report here and now that, in my opinion, those stories are all universally trashy. So trashy that I decided that I was not going to besmirch Homer or my own modest podcasting efforts by relaying those stories to you now. But they are out there, and someday, if you want to see what lesser authors have done, when they've imagined Odysseus's future, well, it reads like a really, really bad B or C grade movie. So, back from digression and on to my conclusions. What in the end, after 24 books of Homer's Odyssey, are we to make of our Odysseus character? And here, ladies and gentlemen, well, all I have left to say at the end of 14 episodes and 25 hours of telling you this story, is the very same thing that I told you way back in the very first five minutes of episode number one. Our boy Odysseus is, in the translator Emily Wilson's words, 
one very complicated man. And folks, that word complicated, I suppose, leads me rather nicely into a few final parting comments on my own experiences in telling this story to you. Because not only is Odysseus himself complicated, Homer's entire odyssey is one incredibly complicated story. So complicated, in fact, that part of me wants to, the very moment that I say my goodbyes to you, well, part of me wants to go right back to the beginning and, well, tell you the entire story of the Odyssey all over again. Sort of like Odyssey the Podcast, take number two. Because, of course, folks, as with any complicated work of great art, there are definitionally an infinite number of ways of interpreting, performing, or of telling that work. So, I can report now, as I wrap up this project, that I've done my level best, and to be honest, I'm a little bit proud of my efforts. But I also deeply am aware that I have created only one possible Odyssey the podcast, and that I have left in the process myriad other versions of Odyssey the podcast on the cutting room or podcasting room floor. And all of those other versions, of course, would feature slightly different plot choices on my part and likely some significantly different portrayals of characters, their personalities, and motivations. But at the end of the day, folks, I think that the reason why Homer's Odyssey has lasted as long as it has and why Homer's Odyssey continues to resonate with readers and listeners century after centuries is precisely because of that possibility. Folks, Homer's Odyssey is so good that it invites every generation and interpreters from the most brilliant of performers to the most stumbling of podcasters to step back and then to take a crack at bringing this ancient story to life for their audience's benefit. And it has been... Ladies and gentlemen, folks, my faithful listeners, it has been an honor to have shared my odyssey with you. So, thank you for listening, and thank you for being my traveling companion throughout this project. If you wish to donate by credit card or PayPal, instructions are on my website. And thank you. And if you wish to touch base with me to chat about your own experience of our Odyssey together, well, I would be honored and absolutely thrilled and delighted to hear from you. So now, now it is time for me to roll my final credits and to play my theme music once again for a final time. So I want to thank you, my traveling companions. And as you carry on with your own personal odysseys, I wish you courage and creativity in overcoming your monsters. And I wish you patience and wisdom in resisting, eventually at least, all of your temptations. And finally, may Zeus, Athena, 
and all of the other gods keep a close watch over you. <laughs>